1: Hi podcast listeners, welcome to the A World of Difference podcast. We have so many guests on this show making a difference in our lives, making a difference all around the world with the expertise that they bring. And yet so many of you are reaching out to me saying, you want more, it's not enough, just what we're putting on these podcast episodes for you. And so I am here to extend a very warm welcome to you, to our Difference Maker community, where you can join for as little as $5 a month to get all this extra content, Out the gate, you're going to get 30 plus mini-sodes of exclusive content not available for the regular podcast listeners and an exclusive mini-sode every month, and you'll get exclusive voting power to help us pick podcast topics and more, and that's at our Changers tier. There's three different main tiers and then an extra uh, larger tier, but whatever tier that you join at you will be included in this extra content. And I know that many of you are wanting to go a little bit deeper. And so even though it gets a little wild in there sometimes because of how deep we go, I want you to join us there. This extra content is very special. It means a great deal to me to be a part of this community with you. And I would love to just exchange... uh, ideas or perspectives that you have around these different episodes. And that's the place where we do it. So please show up to our Difference Maker community. Give us $5 out of your pocket every month. And I think that you'll have a lot of fun in there because we do. And I would love for you to join us. So go to patreon.com slash a world of difference to join us there. Welcome to the A World of Difference podcast. I'm Lori Adams Brown, and this is a podcast for those who are different and want to make a difference. Our guest on today's show is Martine Kalau. Martine is a speaker, a consultant, a trainer, and an author. She's a develop- organizational developmental expert and owns a company, Martine Kalau Enterprises. She brings more than a decade of professional experience working with Fortune 500 companies and tech startups. She helps develop people and increase performance and productivity as a diversity, equity, and inclusion consultant. She's written for Huffington Post, given a TEDx talk, appeared on syndicated networks like C SPAN, and with her company, she's spoken at companies around diversity and inclusion and leadership at companies such as LinkedIn, Bank of America, Howard Hughes Corporation, and Cornell University. She holds a master's in public administration with a focus on immigration law, and she spent her early career in the public sector working um, in budgeting for the New York City Mayor's Office of Management and Budget. She has a vast experience, and she's going to be speaking to us today about leadership and particularly around diversity, equity, and inclusion with an emphasis on belonging. So welcome to today's show, Martine Kalau. Hi, Martine. Welcome to the A World of Difference podcast today. Hi, Lori. Hi, everyone. (laughs) (laughs) It's great to have you. I'm so excited for people to get to know you, hear about your very interesting background and the work that you're doing, which is so crucial right now. So let's start with uh, a little bit about your background. Who is Martine Kalau?
0: Okay, I will try to keep it short and sweet.
1: And if I start talking too much, just
0: cut me off. But (laughs) wow, um, I define myself as a stateless and undocumented survivor was born in uh zambia and um my family's from the democratic republic of the congo i grew up in the united states um new york city maryland um ohio and um During my journey of being undocumented, and I was actually orphaned at one point, um, I spent seven years in removal proceedings, deportation proceedings, um, trying to fight a system, um, and um, really a a system that was created for people like me to fail. Um, Throughout my journey of being undocumented, um, you know, being orphaned, putting myself through school, through college, graduate school, I was exposed to so many different communities. I was invited into different communities, whether being um, the undocumented community, right? And there's subcommunities within that, the stateless community, which is very unique from being undocumented. I went to a prep school, a boarding school that was predominantly all white. Um, I also, at one point, went to middle school in Columbus, Ohio, which was predominantly African-American, right? Um, And I've navigated through a myriad of different communities and circles. And so it's given me an interesting perspective, Lori, where um, it's widened my lens. And um, I just have a more of like, I think an epistemic privilege where I understand different perspectives. And so through that lens and through that privilege, I decided that it was time, you know, I worked in the corporate space for about 13 years running learning and development departments globally. And in that work, I was doing a lot of unconscious bias training, you know, diversity training. Um, I realized there was more work that needed to be done. And I was able to pinpoint exactly where the work needed to be done. And so that's what I did. I created Martine Calau Enterprises and our, um, our work and our, our, main objective is to support human resources professionals in being able to make diversity, equity, and inclusion accessible in the workplace, right? That's one, um, being able to give them more time back because right now many of them feel burdened by the work, the DEI yeah. work. Yeah, it's tough, it's tough. Past, right, and the last piece is giving them the tools to identify the return on investment right? So that DEI is considered a business imperative in the workplace, so that it is part of the conversation that is had at, you know, at the table with, you know, all other business initiatives and structures. So that's really what, who I am and what my passion is.
1: It's so great because, um, you know, your, your background, I mean, we could spend the whole time talking about that and it's so fascinating. I mean, just the DRC Portion alone has just like a million questions I would ask. <laughs> but, yeah. but um, you know, it's, uh, and then your journey being stateless, undocumented, you really do, your own personal journey has given you uh, a taste of what it feels like to be on the margins. And I think people who are on the margins in any way have a choice to make. And it's, will I allow this experience to help me see through the eyes and the lens of other people and help them too. Or will it just constantly be a situation where I feel I, I I'm powerless? And it, it's true, there is a powerlessness element to that. And at the same yeah. time, you found the place where you did have some power and some privilege, and then you built on that and a and a level of resilience that's that's really remarkable. And and so um, I, I kind of want to camp out just for a second on just your process of uh, you said it was at seven years of. Um, Okay. Talk about how that went, because you talk about how the system is stacked against people meant to make them fail. So what are some tips you have for people that might be listening that are in that process currently?
0: That's great. And I actually, um, you know, I have a book that um, provides more tools for individuals who are undocumented or stateless. Um, and also it's my memoir, just sharing my personal journey. So for me, like I in, in my book and anytime I speak about my journey, my experience, there were three specific components that supported me that allowed me to empower myself. Right. And because the thing is when you're in a space, whether you're undocumented, whether you're part of another marginalized unity, it's very easy to feel like you don't have any agency. You don't have power. More specifically, there's a loss of dignity. Mm. That is like so deep because when we think about these systems, these, um, you know, these things that are boulders that are placed in front of us. And after a while, right, after trying to um move and push against these walls some people many people can feel a loss of dignity right mm-hmm. and so it's really important and i i like i i you know when i mentor individuals who are in the same space i say you need a team we mm-hmm. all need a team yeah we do back to and this ties back to what you said earlier which was you know when you're marginalized It's easy to feel like, to feel that sense of brokenness and aloneness. And when you feel that, sometimes you end up pushing people away, right? You're downtrodden and you push people away. So what I I suggest is do the opposite, right? Invite a team, but not to help you, to invest in you, right? Mm -hmm. And just reframing it in that way changes a person right it helps them because when we we think of help it's charity it's it's you know it's not a, a quid pro quo a give and take it's you know there's there's a sense of pity and there's one person who might feel like they're the savior they're helping the other person so it's really important i tell people you know the first thing is get a team and what is that who's the team right the team is really You know, someone who you can talk to, right? Mm -hmm. Mental health practitioner, um, a counselor, someone or a friend who can just listen Mm because this stuff is really, really heavy. And there's no way that any, any human being should have to contain themselves and contain all of that trauma within themselves and not share that with anyone. So that's the first thing. The second thing is having. What I call the technical assistant, um, a mentor, a um, an ally, if you will. So for me, that person was the person who sometimes liaised between my attorney and I when I was so emotional and I couldn't process things that my attorney was saying. When we go to the doctor, right? What do you know? And like we're trying to understand what's what the ailment is. What do people usually suggest? Have someone go with you, right? Get a second opinion, but also have someone go with you because sometimes there's so much emotion. You can't process things. And so that's really, really critical for anyone going through this, having someone who can go. If you end up having to be in the courtroom, right, knowing what we know about immigration, um, it's under it's not under the judicial system right it's under the executive system so there isn't there isn't a jury um and not you're not always guaranteed an an attorney right so it's really important to have someone there with you and then the third thing or this third person is having the right attorney right an attorney who actually builds you up and is your advocate rather than your savior and having And understanding how to communicate with the attorney. So that's sometimes some of the work I do, volunteer work that I do, is to um, help to translate things. So, for example, person A, if you don't hear from from your attorney for six months, rather than assuming that your attorney has forgotten about you, right, because that just brings up, elicits a lot of feelings, this is probably what is actually happening they have a book of maybe 30 other cases and what they're doing is they're prioritizing they're focused right now on the person that's actually being deported like tomorrow
1: right Mm -hmm. so
0: this is the kind of stuff that individuals who are in this space, in this situation. This is the support they need, right? And these are the things that they can do. So starting there. um, So I, I, you know, one, having, you know, a technical assistant, right? Two, having, um, having someone, a therapist, a counselor, third, having the right attorney, right? And having a therapist or counselor that understands the framework of immigration so that when you go into these conversations with them, they're not asking the very basic questions of, so like, what is, what does it mean? What's the definition of being undocumented? And doesn't, they don't have context because then you spend more time having to explain it. So these are the type of resources that are needed. Sometimes they're missing, right? And so there's a lot of work that needs to be done to provide these tools and resources for these individuals who end up being resources to the, to, to undocumented immigrants and stateless persons.
1: That's such great advice. And obviously spoken from someone who's walked through it, come through it and it's helping others. It's just, it's just gold. Um, So, yeah, I think that in so many challenging issues in life, we need a team, but I mean, for me last year, I built a team around me of different people helping me walk through a particular traumatic event from you know, a therapist that had a specialty in that area to like a career coach to a spiritual director to like mentor. I mean, I had a whole team of people just for that. And it was much more mild than being a stateless undocumented um, person trying to get citizenship and a situation that was stacked against me. So all the more so a reason for a team. And thank you so much. That is super valuable. So we'll put links in the show notes to anything related to that or um, you know, hopefully there can be resources for people to find like the list of therapists that would have specialty in that area, which is really important to
0: um, I'm actually building um, a website. I have a website called stateless um, and uh, stateless and dreamers foundation. It's actually a foundation. So I have a website. It's still under construction, but that's where a lot of these resources will actually sit. So an individual can go right to the website and download some of that information so that they can navigate more effectively.
1: Oh, incredible. I know we have listeners listening right now that are going to be heading right there <laughs> because this is, this is what our space is. We have a diverse audience all around the world but um, we do have quite a few here in the United States that are in that category that listen. And so thank you for that resource. Well, you are a resource for many things today. So I wanna make sure we also dig into your book um, about diversity and inclusion. And just tell us, first of all, why why did you write this book?
0: I wrote this book because going back to the conversation around accessibility, I felt like, okay, these conversations around diversity, equity and inclusion, primarily in the workplace, Um, are going way over people's heads, right? Um, And sometimes individuals who are in marginalized communities, um, including myself, I understand there's so much frustration, um, exhaustion, that we end up excluding others from the conversation. Not intentionally. Unintentionally, we do that. And so in the work that I've done and some of the research that I've done, I've actually had white male CEOs say, you know, I don't feel like I'm allowed to say anything. I don't feel like I'm going to say the right thing. So I'm just going to keep my mouth shut. And wow. that is terrifying to me Yeah. because I'm thinking, right. If we, if we don't get the individuals, if we don't include everyone, especially the individuals that are. Currently, right now, dominating, driving yeah. corporate America, white male CEOs in these conversations, yeah. then nothing really changes. Mm-hmm. So that was one reason that I wrote the book. Secondly, in the work that I've done, you know, building management development programs, um, you know, being part of a human resources team, I have seen and understood the nuances and the power and the influence that managers have. The business structures that facilitate organizations such as performance management, hiring, attrition, all of those things have two things in common. They're driven by human resources and managers. And these same business structures can influence and influence the makeup of a company, of an organization. And so therefore that's the the connection, right? That's the bridge, DEI and all these business structures, the bridge is human resources and managers. And so I wrote this book specifically targeting managers, but it's also a book, a reference book for human resources so that they're equipped with the tools to support their managers in also carrying the weight of DEI. So it doesn't, yeah. DEI doesn't change or improve in an organization because, you know, we've got an equivalent of a diversity task force and a few people who are passionate about and passionate about it, and maybe even a you know head of DEI. It changes when, you know, it's filtered throughout the organization and it's part of the business systems and the business structure.
1: Yes, I hear this over and over again here in the Silicon Valley from people working in DEI as well as just, you know, average people working in any role in these um, different tech companies that, you know, there's these different trainings people will come in to do like unconscious bias and, um, you know, different things that help people understand. But there's a lot of disconnect between, you know, the information and how it can actually play out and then there's sometimes it feels like there's just a lot of lip service given toward DEI in the workplace. So how do you handle that type of um, situation or what is your advice, I guess, toward managers and HR in particular around those kind of conversations?
0: Yeah, I think the thing is that we, we make, DEI can be very complex, right? I mean, but it should be accessible to everyone and the way that you make it accessible is through upskilling managers, right? These these concepts around hiring, how to um, write a performance review, how to look at a resume. I mean, these are things, these are processes and skills that all managers should, right? Um, Be involved in, participate in. Well, The only difference DEI offers, right, is just shifting your lens just a little bit more. So it's getting the managers to understand the value of just looking at things, widening your lens a little bit more. So manager, for example, when you think about all the work that you put into hiring the right person and then they don't stay, let's reevaluate why that might be. How did you, what was the process in hiring this person? What were some of the potential unconscious biases that people might have when they're looking at hiring individuals, right? How are you writing the job qualifications? What are some of the, um, the common biases that, um, that, it, that different marginalized groups of people experience in the workplace? with compensation with promotions right it's just shifting the lens to show managers that this is just another layer right of management development and it's actually empowering the managers i mean like managers get to wear this this like their cape right like they're the ones that we need to, to, they have the widest belt in an organization. They have the influence, right? Top-down, bottom-up influence, right? They're the liaison between everyone in the organization is that middle management. They influence the makeup of an organization, right? They influence who stays, who goes. People decide, sometimes, you know, studies show that people sometimes might be unhappy in an organization, but they will stay, their longevity, all is is tied to, primarily tied to their relationship with their manager. So managers get to remember the power and the influence that they have and the potential they have to, you know, be more successful and and increase engagement. So that's, that's the position in which we, you know, we enter this conversation. So it's not lip service when, especially when you've got metrics And you also can identify the return on investment when we adjust those metrics and we improve the metrics.
1: Yeah, I think, honestly, for me, um, I mean, probably for both of us, right, being people who have grown up and also worked in a variety of spaces culturally and, you know, in different places around the world and that type of thing, um, we, we inherently see a reason for diversity, equity, inclusion, belonging, justice, all those things, right? But I think even more so, and maybe for people who haven't grown up in diverse, you know, situations, the bottom line is really the compelling factor. And we have, a, you know, a situation where we've had the great resignation, we've had the she session going on for a while, we have um, jobs out there that people are trying to figure out how to fill and, and maintain employees. We also have uh, serious issues going on with employee engagement, which I think has not gotten a whole lot better since the 70s. And it, when you bring in DEI to these conversations, then you have a situation where people can find tools to actually help those metrics be better. But I'm interested in this question, just in, you know, in a basic question of how can or why, I guess the question is more, why should companies do more than just appear inclusive? Because we see a lot of appearance of like, pictures that are like, you've got a black woman, a lati- you know, you got like oh. the different, you know, Latino, yeah. Native American, oh, this is an inclusive company. But then I hear reports of people once they get inside, they're like, oh, no, that was just all on the website. Yeah. It really wasn't true. So why would it be important for a company to do more than just appear to be inclusive?
0: Yeah, um, I have a whole chapter dedicated to that in my book where I talk about tokenism, right? And tokenism is, you know, when companies have this, you know, they appear to be inclusive and they decide, and we saw a wave of this happening about a year and a half ago where it was like, hey, we're going to have, you know, X woman on our board because we want more diversity. Well, If you just have one person, this ex, you know, this one woman, there's lack of representation, right? And tokenism looks like when we bring in diversity, but we still have beliefs or we still focus, we still interact or look at this person based on our limited single narrative of the group that the person's associated with. And so what ends up happening is that it, it can affect that person's performance, right? Either that person is working so hard to not be the stereotype, right? And it ends up hurting them or they are like, they fall into this single narrative because the people around them won't see them outside of that. So what we know is that that's extremely, can be extremely demanding and exhausting in a person's performance. And what ends up happening is that the person might respond in a number of ways, they could attrit, or they might actually end up reinforcing, right? Those beliefs on the next person that comes in, right? And so that is why, and so when we look at, if we actually look at the numbers, right? We can actually look at the numbers and look at, well, how much does it cost to bring someone in and train them, the recruiting costs, all of that for them to leave a year and a half later, right? I mean, we just, and I think that's where we've got to start. And that's why a company should care. That's one reason they should care. Another reason they should care is, you know, if you've got a business to consumer organization, right? You might be missing a huge market, Just because, well, one—if you have just one person, right—and you you want you bring in one person to be your representative, you know, your representative of diversity—that's a lot of weight to put on this one person to be able to appeal to that to the market that you're trying to appeal to, to be able to understand that market, to be able to sell. So you need a whole team, right? So this really becomes a business imperative, if your sales numbers are down, right? When, when people are looking at companies are looking at their sales targets, what do they do? They sit down, they evaluate where we are, where they do, you know, they look at the numbers, where do we need to be? And what are all the pieces that, you know, are missing? And, and what is our target? What's our goal? I'm suggesting that we do this same thing. Now, some people might feel like, oh, Martine, that's so callous. You're making it about you're making it about numbers and money only. Well, it's a business imperative. It starts there, but it can't remain there forever, right? When and if you make it a business imperative and you're looking at the numbers and you're looking at the targets, there's going to have to be a level of authenticity authenticity at some point, right? So if you're trying to appeal to a certain market, you're going to have to make sure that the salespeople that are working with this market understand this community understand and know how to connect to this community so at some point it stops being about the numbers it starts it gets real basically is what i'm saying
1: yeah no that that it makes absolute sense and it's very practical in terms of how to start and when we're talking about systems that are unjust or un- not inclusive or where people don't belong some of it some of the work does just start with very practical beginnings like that but can grow into something with more depth and more meaning but when we're trying to get people all on board to bring about a change that's that's the part of diversity in the system that we also have to consider like you were saying if in diversity equity and inclusion conversations we're leaving out the perspectives of white male ceos that's a huge gap we need everyone around the table diverse brains diverse experiences Coming at this problem, where I, I think that a lot of like early business models that maybe we've left behind and are trying to reinvigorate a bit are the idea that we don't know what the outcome is going to look like, at, you know, before we sit down to the table. And so, sitting down to the table and everybody gets a voice to speak into it, we create something that didn't exist in any of our brains separately. But it's something much more holistic and all-encompassing when we brought these different perspectives around it, and that. It works really well with business if you have a market that's global because you need global perspectives. And um, so I think the very minimum starting there is, has been a place I've felt compelled to start. And I know many other people in business have too. There's a lot of conversation and we're in a series now that and we just started on belonging. And so I know that a lot of conversations I'll hear people say, and I've had this in my own workplace experience as well. You might have a diverse workforce at right. some level but it's not inclusive. Or you might have one that feels a little bit inclusive, but there's not belonging. Belonging feels like this level that's just, it's so hard to achieve. It feels too too much for a lot of people, so they don't even try. But if you've ever been in a place (laughs) where you've belonged, it's something I think we all kind of long for in our workplaces. And I think that's part of why we're seeing the great resignation happen is the lack of belonging. And so I would love to get your perspective on how we can have companies and organizations that really create these spaces of belonging at work.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, again, I go back to, um, it really starts with human resources or, you know, whatever companies call it talent, the people, people, teams, what, you know, um, whatever, you know, sits best with, uh, with anyone, any of our listeners. Um, But having, human resources or the equivalent working with managers to really um, incorporate that into their management development, right? So when we think about management development, right? We think about making sure that when a new person starts, they join the organization, they feel like they know their trajectory of their career. They feel like they're part of the team, right? managers automatically have to do that to motivate their teams. So this is what I mean. Like this is not, we're not, this is why I call it the ABCs of diversity, my book, because it doesn't have to be, we can take little steps and just shift our lens. So in terms of belonging, it can look like, and it can start with something as simple as, hey, manager, you know, have you had a conversation with your new hire or with the, with the people on your team to understand what, you know, what, what, what they're, what they envision or what their goals are, right, in terms of their growth? Do you sit with your team and communicate what the vision is for, what your vision is for the organization or what your vision is for the team? Do you sit with your team and support them in exposing them to different trainings, like giving them access to different trainings? Do you do you allow your team members to each feel like they have a say or that they can give input? In, you know, whatever uh projects and initiatives that are coming. So belonging starts with little things. Like I talk about in my book, like I work for this company and I was a pretty, I was pretty senior. And I lacked, I was scared to go to work. I was scared to go to work. I was scared to go to work, and some would think I was scared to go to work because I was one of three Black people in the organization, not necessarily, because as I've told, you know, as I mentioned earlier, I've been in a lot of spaces where I was the only black woman or black person. So that wasn't what caused the lack of belonging. I mean, that certainly added to it. Right. But I would have felt like I belonged if I walked into that office and I didn't feel like people were staring at me because I was black and, or when music was playing, it was always hip hop music, right? In, the, in, the, in, the, um, in the, the, the hallways. And there was always the N word. It wasn't bleeped out or anything. So I didn't feel, obviously I felt like I was, I stood out It made me very uncomfortable. Little things like that, you know, is what creates or leads people to not feel like they belong right and when we're now we're that we're in like this virtual world right where a lot of offices are virtual it's really critical for managers to build relationships and it's really about coaching i mean it's really about asking questions that's really where it starts i think that's the thing when i when i work with you know different managers around these conversations. They're like, well, I don't know. I don't know what to say, I don't know. Like they, because we historically we've made diversity, equity and inclusion like this ethereal concept, like you have to understand and know what all these terms mean. So people are intimidated. No, it starts with just connecting with a person. Asking them questions like, you know how do you like to receive feedback? Like what, you know, what's worked for you in the past in terms of management style, right? Are you more hands off? Are you more hands on? Like these little things is what builds trust. And that building of trust is what allows people to start to feel like they can, they belong in the organization. It starts. Uh,
1: Yeah. I couldn't agree more when it comes to building trust. Some people have this leadership style where they're like, you know, trust should just be given to me, but as the manager, as the CEO, as the boss, I feel like it's very, um, it's a naive perspective in a lot of ways, because that's not, if the world ever worked that way, it certainly doesn't seem to be working that way right now. Um, yeah, everyone does. Right. Yeah. And, um, I mean, we talk about this even as a family, since our kids were little, we have a little trust uh we, when our kids were into legos back in the day we would say trust is built one lego at a time.
0: <laughs> oh I love
1: that. That's yes. awesome. Yeah, and it's like okay. yeah, you know, parts of it might get knocked down but then you just build it back. Like that's the thing. It's not like this perfect thing. Um but it's like every interaction, every time you notice someone, every time you make them feel like they are heard and you actually do listen and they, you remember the things that they've told you, all of these things build trust. And I think a lot of managers struggle there and need that kind of coaching.
0: And Lori, I was going to say something else. Like I, I also see, I mean, there are little things that, that we can do as managers that human resources can help to reinforce, to establish a sense of belonging, Right. Here's another one. I mean, this is flipping DEI on, on its head because I don't think people, when they when we think of diversity, equity, and inclusion, we think of diversity categories, we we only think of like that first layer, which is biological, right? Um, you know, race, we think of, you know, um sexual orientation, right? We don't think of like that next layer, that you know, layer two, that the cultural where it could be nationality. So when I think about um, inclusion, a lot of times here, this is something that's, you know, listeners like consider this, like for many of us, we work at organizations that are global at this point. Inclusion looks like when you schedule that next team meeting, are you considering those people, the people on your team that are in a, you know, different time zone and it's like 6 p.m. for them, right? Things like that and acknowledging those little things is part of building inclusion, making the person feel like, oh, I was considered. And even if you don't have the answers, it's asking the questions. You know, I know that, you know, we're all, my team members, we're all in these different time zones. So let's see if we can figure out a way to, you know, schedule these team meetings that work for everyone, right? Maybe some of us can have our, we can agree that you can have your video cameras off. I don't know, right? So that, these little things, I think that we make DEI so grandiose and we try to, you know, um, find ways to make these grand gestures that we overlook the small things that seem small, but actually can go a long way.
1: Yes, I wholeheartedly agree. I mean, having lived and worked in Singapore for many years, a lot of um, people that I knew there worked in banking and different things. They'd have to be, they'd have to deal with like when Hong Kong was going, which was like an hour different, but then also like when the New York Stock Exchange was, so they felt like they were always working. Like they were just constantly 24 seven on these calls. Right. And I know that some things got out of hand, especially during COVID with people working more instead of less and all these things. So mm-hmm. I think that if there's ever been a time to reconsider how we can work. It's certainly now where employee retention is causing us to have to rethink. And you know, I, I would love to press into this space a little bit, um, just as a, you know, particular example so people can have a specific example of what maybe implicit bias looks like, or um, and it, like, let's just take the example of being a woman, which is something both you and I share in terms of, a, you know, a category, a box that we could check on a form. <laughs> um, and, you know, so much of the workforce back in the day was built by men for men. And then even now, part of the reason so many women are leaving the workforce, especially If you add in a factor of being a mom, which is another level of marginalization in the workforce, um, you know, if moms had to be home for whatever reason at three o'clock and then, you know, just that period of time of day, three to five, they may need to be with their kids, but then they could work later at night when their kids went to bed. And just that flexibility, we're Mm -hmm. seeing more companies be able to do. But when you have managers that constantly make the meeting at three o'clock, because that's how their boss did it, who was a male. And that seems like the default and they just don't ever question it. So some of those things, like, let's take the example of what it would be like for a male manager to just open up his mind to what it would be like for a woman on his team. How would you coach him in that?
0: Um, So the, the conversation becomes, you know, you know, think about what the experience might look like for other people in your team, right? Um, let's think about um, what are we not considering? I mean, it's, it's asking the questions. Let's look at the, the, let's consider the different backgrounds of all the different people in your team. Meaning, okay, what makes everyone on your team similar? How are they different in your eyes? I think that that's the first thing because some people choose not to see how people are different right and i think that culturally and we're conditioned to not see it like it's bad to even acknowledge that people are different right and so i think the first question really does become it's okay to acknowledge that people are different. That's not a bad thing. That's okay because we want people to acknowledge, you know, it's, let's embrace people's differences. That's what makes this so, you know, such a rich environment. So how are people's experiences, you know, back, how are they different? How are they similar? That's the first question, right? Then the second question is, do you think that everyone, based on how they're they're different, you know, do you think that, you know, the the timing and the, you know, the the experience they have in these meetings are similar, right? How could they be different? How are they the same? And let the person really think, right? And I think, and, and for me, it's not about um, telling people, um, it's really about letting them come to their own conclusion, right? And usually when you open it up with these open-ended questions and allowing people to really think through, they'll surprise you, you know, Um, they will consider, but you do have to kind of nudge them, right? And so, like I said, usually the reason there there is oversight or people choose not to acknowledge or, you know, that 3 p.m. meeting doesn't work for everybody. The manager has never considered it as one. They don't have time to consider it. That's one right they're, They They may not have time or two. They don't feel like they have permission to acknowledge how people are different. Cause that's bad. Like that they're, they're going to get in trouble for that. Um, so that's, that's really what, you know, we want people to acknowledge and, and we want managers to learn how to navigate and assess.
1: Yeah, that's, that's excellent. I mean, obviously here at the world of difference podcast, we are all about, people are different. We're all different. We're all unique very unique and wonderful ways. Right. And that's the beauty. That's the beauty of this world is that we're all so unique and different. There's different colors, there's different experiences. It's, it's wonderful. And, um, and we embrace being different. And that's how we can make a difference is by acknowledging the differences among us and, and bringing those to the table, you know, in a really that's flat true. level of like, we're all in this together, trying to figure this out. But I, you know, yeah. I do feel like, um, giving people the opportunity to think through it that's such that's such a good way like almost like a socratic method like questioning and helping them discover for themselves you know a lot of women in the workforce we're, we we're not surprised when we get into a performance review and they don't focus on our outcomes they focus on how we did it our tone or our voice—you—you you didn't speak up enough, or you spoke up too much. You were too strong. You weren't warm enough. You were too warm. You weren't strong. Absolutely. We can never quite thread the needle. And so, yeah. for male managers, they often don't realize that's the exhaustion that we're facing. And you know, just helping male managers understand when you're, co- you know, when you're dealing with a woman in a performance review, when you're giving feedback, you don't have to tiptoe around her. She's not fragile, but you just have to understand the history she's walked through and that there are these sexist tropes that you may be playing into with your yeah. own unconscious bias and this will help everyone to be free from these this bondage that we all face in the workforce right
0: <laughs> and I, and asking that question allows the, the manager to dig deeper and look at a couple of things one there are, you know people from different marginalized spaces experience different biases, different ways in the workplace. So it's important for the manager to really think and be forced to think in that way. Right. And by asking that question, they can start to acknowledge how each person is different. And secondly, you know, we think about, um, sitting at the, you know, we, you know, we, we talk about this, this concept of, um, you know, it, it escapes my mind all of a sudden. Um, but the, the concept of intersectionality. So that also is a really important thing, right? Because not all women are going to have that same experience. And that's important to get the manager and the team to start to discuss, well, what works? What why doesn't it work for this person? Why does it work for this person, right? We can't assume each and every person experiences biases the same, right? I love to use an example of um, you know, the the example of black people getting like the 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 the, the I would call it a, um a microaggression is, The you know, when you get the comment of, oh, you're really well-spoken, right? So, I mean, I talk about that also, and I, you know, share how anyone who experiences a microaggression can actually navigate through it. They're different. We all have a choice on how we want to We can, we want to navigate through it, you know? So after a while, I learned that, Rather than being offended by that comment, asking a follow-up question. Well, what do you mean by that, right? And an open-ended question to get clarity. When I ask that question, surprising, right? People were able to follow up and explain, and it would actually was a compliment, right? Sometimes we use a lot of jargon, is what I'm saying. But ultimately, what I I share in that example, with that example of the comment of, you know, you're well-spoken, is, you know. I could be offended by that statement you can talk to another black person who's not offended because sometimes people also internalize biases and microaggressions right so one woman could internalize well yeah you know nobody you know even though i'm you know i have to take care of my kids and all that you know and and work and and navigate these two worlds, um, you know, this is just how it is. I just, I, you know, I, I, I'm never going to be, you know, that that's never a consideration, right. Um, In the workplace. And they might internalize that themselves. And then to add to that layer, sometimes it's not just the man Who's the one who would say, hey, got to work at 3 p.m. or whatever. We have meetings at three, whatever. Sometimes it is another woman because she's had to internalize it. She's had to experience that. So she feels like, well, that's just how it is. And I can't, you know, give other women an exception because I had to go through it. Right. And so um, I think all of those layers are things we get to talk about um, in these conversations if we want to, especially with management development.
1: Yes, that's amazing. I love the concept of intersectionality. It's helped me for years to understand the multiple layers that can happen in a person, in workspaces, and all kinds of spaces. Um, so here, you know, we're about to head into, um, you know, black history month in the United States. And so as someone who your history as a black woman in America, it, it doesn't, my understanding, unless there's parts of your story, I don't know yet, doesn't come from enslaved people who were brought to work in forced labor camps and what we call plantations. And, you know, we whitewashed a lot of things and, uh, what was an act of terrorism basically in our history, mm-hmm. but your Story is more of like an immigration story, and so do you often find that people make assumptions about you that your black history is kind of a particular way, and is that a conversation that's been challenging for you to have to navigate at all?
0: Yeah, that's a really great question. Um, you know, it just depends on how people perceive me, right? And so it's all it—it it just depends, and and as I navigate the world as I navigate the U S it just, you know, I never know how people perceive me. Some people assume that, you know, if you're black, you're black. And like in, in the U S it doesn't, you know, we've seen in a lot of instances, it doesn't really matter. Right. Um, What subgroup you are, if you're black, you've got, you know, you have similar experiences of being profiled in a lot of ways. Um, And then there are some instances where um, you know, individuals might see me, they think I have been complimented. Right. And that's, again, it's a microaggression. It's a black backhanded compliment. Um, oh, you're, you're different. You're not like other black people or African-Americans, right. Which is incredibly offensive because I feel like one, if you are you know a black person in america whether or not you have the history you carry that history or not you know i benefit from the tragedy the brutality that african american people experience i benefit from i have certain privileges that they they fought and died for so i could be here yes. and so as far as i'm concerned that is part of my history that is part of my identity at this point so um you know to your point you're gonna have people that are gonna decide, they're gonna define you however you they, they think. It's all perception, right? Um, but we can't worry about that, right? All we get to do, and that's 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 the whole point of you know DEI is you know, we're gonna assume certain things, assume certain narratives, assume, you know, certain identities about people. But what we get to do, if we really want to and if we are willing to is just ask questions and learn. And what we also get to do on the other end of it is be open to sharing if we want to, right? We've got to create safe spaces. But as long as we're all scared of asking the wrong question and not asking the right question and offending someone, we're not going to get as far as we can get. So I always people ask me like, oh, you know, you don't seem, you know, where are you from? <laughs> right. And I'm like, well, you know, and I started to ask before I used to be offended, but, but then I started getting, I, I get, I get that question from everyone, right. Yeah. Whether you're black, white, whatever. And so I started to follow up with, well, what do you mean? Like, you know, where do you, you know, what led you to that question? Yeah. And you'd be surprised by the responses Like, you know, people say, well, cause the way you speak or the way, You carry yourself. I wouldn't necessarily have thought you're American. I mean, that's kind of interesting, also, just because I thought my whole life to be American. (laughs) American enough, but um, I think I don't know if I answered your question, but did um, no,
1: it helps me know you better. And and thank you for answering it in the way that you did because it helps us know, all of us listening, how important it is to ask questions and not be afraid of them because we can only get to know each other as much as we're willing to ask some of the questions and. You know, we yes. often get surprised by the answers. Obviously people look at me and just think I've lived in America my whole life. And I really only moved here two years ago and I'm 46. And so. know, you're like a global <laughs> citizen, I, It's amazing. And I think it's how we ask questions. And I
0: think, yeah. and that's, that's part of the journey of DEI. It's how we ask questions, how we respond to things. Uh, when people say them, that's really, that's, that's where things start. It's, it's not giving people the language people already have the language they're trying to cre- use all this jargon, all this complex jargon, just start with questions and asking permission to ask questions. I think that's the most important thing because sometimes, you know, someone doesn't feel like answering and that's okay. Yeah, But you sure. learn that as a manager, you learn that, you know, in, in coaching, right if you're a good manager you you should be a good coach and some and you should know how to give feedback and how to engage in conversation and one of the things you should you, you know all good managers know is that sometimes it's not the, the best time to engage in conversation right yeah it's not the best time to ask questions it's not the best time to ask feedback same concept of you know trying to uncover and, and learn somebody it's asking if it's okay to ask the question.
1: Yeah, we all have good days and bad days when we're, we're, we're able to answer the questions and when we're not. So. Right. Well, thank you so much. You've taught us so much today. We look forward to reading all of your writing. Let thank us you. know here at the end where people can find you and the resources that you provide for us.
0: Yes, absolutely. So you can go to my website, martincalau.com, and I am offering um, a masterclass for HR professionals um, to come in and learn just those three things that I said, right? How to create more accessibility to DEI in the workplace, how to reduce time that it takes to build and ramp up DEI, and how to be able to identify what the return on investment is for DEI, right? So that's going to be on March 3rd. You can go to my website. And sign up. And um, my audiobook will be out soon. So for AB the ABCs of diversity, but you can also find my book online.
1: Well, it's wonderful. I hope you have an amazing Black History Month where you just feel like Thank you me. can celebrate all the things, all the wonderful people that have gone before us to pave the way for all of us um, to have better understanding and that you just get to like celebrate all of you this month and just just enjoy. Thank you. Can I say one
0: last thing about Black yeah. History Month? Yes, please do. A lot of organizations and companies, I feel like, again, you know, we try, we, we, the companies want to create these grand gestures around Black History Month, which I think is wonderful. But start with the Black people in your organization. You know what I mean? Right. Start with looking at compensation and equity and all of those things. That's much more powerful than, you know, these grander gestures, right? We can do that later. Start there that's, that's what I would encourage um, for all organizations.
1: That is great. And I just want to echo that when we think about like what a man makes makes in the workplace versus what a woman, what a black woman, what a Latino woman makes all of those, all of that information, no matter what your company, we can just look at the wide, the broad strokes of what that looks like. And just, if we could make that, go forward this year black history month it would be a gift to all of us
0: <laughs> black history month and women's history month right as there right so this is what let's start with home let's start with home first and then we can focus on grander gestures but this will make you know all the world of a difference in your organization and start with the metrics to start looking at the metrics that's 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 where you can actually develop your story
1: I love it. Thank you so much. Everybody find her book and read it. Go to all her resources. We're linking them in the show notes. Thank you once again, Martine Kalau, for being with us today. It's been an honor and a privilege. Thank you so much, Lori. You're welcome. Bye-bye. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. Wow. It's it's so fascinating to hear people's histories um, because we all have our own story. And even though it could be really different from our own personal story, we all find places in it where we connect with that person, and and I found myself connecting with parts of Martine's story, even though I have not lived anything close to her life and the places where she's lived. But just uh, that's the thing about these hearing people's stories that we're trying to emphasize here on the World of Difference podcast, especially around this Black History Month, is that yes there are some really important parts of black history that we need to understand. And it's not just uh, generations of people living on multiple continents around the world that we're looking at, but we're looking at individuals and individual stories. And so it's important to And the aspect of creating empathy, which is one of the strategies around diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging conversations. And one of those um, ways we can do a better job of including others and creating places of belonging is just to hear one another's stories in a way where we truly listen and put ourselves in their shoes. What would it be like to live Martine's life in the way that she has lived it? And would we have made those same choices? Would we have made different choices? And so as we listen to her story today, um, I hope that all of you are finding parts that you relate to and you find in common with her. And also just noticing the parts of her story that are unique and distinct and, and fully her. And, and so those are the parts that I noticed in her story. She's an amazing person. Please follow her writing and her work and reach out to her for consulting at Martine Kalau Consulting. We're going to link all her information in the show notes so you can reach out to her for consulting, read her books, listen to her TED Talk, and and just follow her as a thought leader in the space that's so important. I know a lot of businesses right now are digging into what it means to create spaces of belonging wherever you are because... The Great Resignation, some people are calling it the Great Reshuffle because some people are not just leaving the workforce, although that is happening, and especially sometimes in the area of women who are just trying to juggle it all and just find it easier just to step out for a while, but others are just reshuffling and and maybe your workplace is one of those where you're losing a lot of people, there's a lot of attrition right now. People like Martine Kalau can come in and consult with your organization to help you understand how diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging are a real key to the attrition rate right now. So companies doing this well are doing a better job at retaining employees, making better decisions. You know, Corn Ferry did some research that showed that Um, People, organizations that are more inclusive make better decisions 87% of the time. And uh, Salesforce has done some research that showed that when you listen to the voices of your employees and they feel that their voice is heard and matters, that 78% of the time they're performing better at work. So these are just you know, a couple of elements that are reasons to reach out to Martine for consulting for your business. If you're concerned about employee retention, employee engagement, all of these are areas where she can help you to grow and do better. Whether you're in the nonprofit space, the the faith space, government education, she can come in and help consult with you. So we'll link everything in the show notes to Martine Kalau, And uh, we look forward to talking to you next week on the show we're going to have Michael Fosberg who's going to come talk to us about his story where he was a 32-year-old man who had been raised uh, to believe he was white and at 32 years old realized he is black. And so it's a fascinating story. You may have seen him on CNN or gone to one of his uh, one-man acting plays that he does where he plays all the different characters in his own story and um and so we're going to have him on you may have seen him in other spaces but we're going to talk to him about what that experience was like and we're going to talk about the conversation of race as a social construct here during black history month so stick with us throughout the rest of the month we're going to be talking more about this and highlighting different stories around black history and just bringing in the conversation about belonging alongside of it so take care everyone and we'll talk to you next week As we're finishing this episode, if you're thinking, I really wish I could learn more or go a little bit deeper. Well, that's what our Difference Maker community is for. I would love to welcome you in to join the rest of us there. Once again, um, it's only $5 a month to join. The price of a latte at your local coffee shop, you can join at our Changers tier. Difference Makers is a community that really means so much to me. It's very special because each time I have a guest on the show, I record something um, outside of what we give to just the regular podcast audience where we go a little bit deeper and then I post those video episodes in this community and we can discuss them. But also at the very uh, beginning tier, which is our changers tier of this community, you'll get exclusive voting power and help pick podcast topics that give us you know, more of what we want from your perspective. You'll have access to exclusive um, 30 plus mini-sodes that aren't out there for the general public, and you'll get every month an exclusive monthly bonus mini At our Groundbreakers level, which is $10 a month, you can join and get all of that, but also priority access to submit questions to the podcast, and you'll get an additional two exclusive monthly bonus mini And at our Trailblazers tier, which is $15 a month, the price of three lattes a month, um, you can get all of that plus also three exclusive monthly bonus mini-sodes um, and a patron shout out. So I would love for you to join us at any of those tiers. Um, it'll help you come into this community, be in the midst of all of us, other difference makers, and we'd love to hear your perspective. I certainly would. It's a place to engage more with me and the audience around what you like, what you're resonating with, and once again, go deeper with each of our guests. So Please join us in this membership community. I would love to hear your perspective and love to share this extra content with you. So show up at Patreon.com/slash/A World of Difference. Save big on brunch for mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger
0: milk for one twenty-nine each. Then get flavorful Tyson natural boneless chicken breasts for two forty-nine a pound,
1: all with your card and a digital coupon.